Welcome to Premiere the Play, bringing the theater from our homes to yours. Premiere the Play, new theatrical works from the pen to the page to the podcast. Welcome to the ninth episode of season two of Premiere the Play. I'm Rebecca Lynn, and today we'll be following George Bernard Shaw behind the scenes of Pygmalion in And Then Galatea Laughed, A Very Modern Romance by Scott Carter Cooper. And Then Galatea Laughed stars Carl Weintraub, Skip Pipo, and Laurie O'Brien. Sir Herbert Beerbaum Tree's private office at His Majesty's Theatre in London, 1914. A luxurious bed sits next to a Japanese screen from which are hung elements of a gentleman's wardrobe. A desk is piled with manuscripts. A table has been laid for a romantic dinner, but the candles are burned down and there is one half-drunk glass of wine. The floor is strewn with the remnants of a shredded bouquet of flowers. Various theatrical props litter the space. Cynthia! Oh, Cynthia, I'm coming, darling! A book-lined wall swings free, revealing a secret entry. Sir Tree, aging but still acutely aware of his attractiveness, bursts in, finds the room empty, and heaves a script, scattering the pages everywhere. She could have at least left me a dinner roll. Sir Herbert, I know we went very long this evening, but it couldn't be helped. You know, the last rehearsal before a premiere is mayhem. Praise for Maryvale. Pickering is a supporting role, and yet Maryvale receives dozens of notes of praise in front of the entire company for delivering a simple punchline. He's stealing the show. You give Pickering all the laugh lines while I'm on stage for nearly three hours, working like a toothless whore before the fleet sails. I am the star and the producer, and I say I don't want to play Henry Higgins. I want Maryvale's part. Sir Herbert, it's your company. You can play Pickering if you like. We can certainly switch you in Maryvale. I'm sure Mr. Maryvale would be most amenable. Though I don't think he's exactly right for Higgins. Grab that broom and help me sweep away this mess. But the audience will probably not notice. They love Maryvale as Romeo. I could have played Romeo. It just, it wasn't meant to be. A wise choice to let Maryvale have it, with the memory of Forbes Robertson's Romeo so fresh. <laughs> Even though it was years ago, no one has done it justice since. Did you see it? He was so boyish as he entered the tomb and discovered Julia. Well, there was almost no point in him trying to speak. The sobs in the house were so loud. And, and then when Stella came back to life... Was the she-beast in that? Say... Perhaps we could engage Forge Robertson to take over. Higgins really requires a star, don't you think? Think of the press. Forbes Robertson and Mrs. Patrick Campbell together again. With you in a supporting role. Last, we should have thought of that sooner. But I've just done Mercutio. The public is hungry for me in a leading role, and it would be wicked of me to deprive them. Well, there is nothing for it but to carry on as Higgins. Oh, the humanity. But there you are. Oh, drat. 
So, in the alternative, you must cut all of Merrivale's laugh lines. Write this down. There should be no snickering for pickering. Sir Herbert, this is a comedy. Let's let poor Merrivale have his few chuckles, shall we? Is there anything else? Why were there no notes for her? Leading ladies are like wives. Stella is just like my wife, Charlotte, going all temperamental over the silliest things and then being petulantly silent. If you want to avoid the wrath of a wife, you must handle her delicately. I agreed to this production because you begged me. You told me Mrs. Patrick Campbell was penniless, and it was my duty to a fellow thespian to produce this play and make her and that little fop of hers solvent. But are there to be no standards? This is His Majesty's theatre. Why, just last week, even as Mercutio, I brought down the house and took nine curtains. That performance was forged through professional discipline, and that's what's lacking here. Why aren't you writing this down? I could have played Romeo, you know. Damn difficult role, much more demanding than Hamlet or Mac... Uh, the Scottish king, hopping from balconies and waving swords and all that operatic emotion. The role exhausted poor Maryville. And now he's playing mirthless old men. <laughs> I ask you, has ever a Mercutio died as beautifully as I? I know I have recently begun praying for just such a death. A death scene. That's it. Nothing too showy. Higgins proposes marriage to Eliza. She rejects him, and so he flings himself from the balcony. What do you think? You die off stage. I see your point. Of course you realize she has yet to deliver the text as you wrote it. I am aware of every breach in the text. And the notoriously verbose George Bernard Shaw says nothing. Surely you remember my production of the Scottish play and my queen, superb. Cynthia was able to act and look at me at the same time. Now, Sir Herbert, uh, while I have your ear, Perhaps we could discuss... All I did was meekly ask that Stella look at me when I'm speaking so that she will know when I've finished my line. And she disappears for three days and a half. I, it's I... time to face the facts, Shaw. Something must be done. We're floundering. Everyone agrees that the script is far too long. Start by trimming Eliza's declarative sentences, I should think. Sentences? Of course. You don't want to trim her questions, or I'll have no logical reason to be speaking. In fact... If you could limit as many of her questions to one word or, or a single syllable or, or a gesture, I think the story could clip right along. You can help her come up with some gestures, can't you? I'm thinking of one right now. I wonder if the answer hasn't been staring us in the face all the time. Let's not have Higgins teach Eliza to speak the king's English. Let's have Higgins teach Eliza to speak. Oh. She would remain mute for the first four acts. And when Higgins asks her to marry him in the fifth, there she is, devoutly genuflected at my feet, lashes a flutter, saying softly, as you wish. Then she kisses my hand as the curtain descends to rapturous applause. Oh, yes, yes, that solves so many issues, don't you think? I've acted for three hours, Eliza has worn a glittering gown, and the audience is in bed before midnight. What could be better than that? I don't know what to say. Of course, Mrs. Pat might not stand for it, but if we were to do it my way, there would also be a savings in salary. We'd get a new Eliza. And, as luck would have it, I have the perfect young woman in mind. 
twenty-two if she's a day, blonde, and positively dewy. I would be willing to delay the opening for a week or two while I transform her into our Eliza. A blonde, you say? Shall I send a carriage? Cynthia lives quite near here. Hello? Curses. If we're very quiet, perhaps she won't find us. Oh, what a cunning little hideaway. Does Lady Tree know about this? Hmm. May this poor player join the conversation? I brought Mrs. Wills's chocolates for anyone who's feeling nibbly. Of course. I was just about to make some suggestions to Sir Herbert. Well, if you don't mind, may I offer my deepest apologies again for my behavior. We all feared your Pekingese had taken ill. We couldn't imagine what else would have kept you from the theater. Yes, how is Pinky Panky uh... Pooh? Pinky Panky Pooh is, well, he's in the pink, I should think. <laughs> oh, I made a rhyme. Sir Herbert, you like a good rhyme, don't you? Yes. Well, let me assure you both that I am also quite well, but I'm not at liberty to say more. That's a relief. Yes. It was silly of me to be so upset the other day. I misheard my cue, and Sir Herbert, you were right to bring it to my attention. Well, if you had been paying closer attention, you would have realized I had not finished speaking. You are quite right, of course. My apologies again. I'm afraid tensions always run high as the opening night approaches. Not to worry. Your understudy did a magnificent job in your absence. Wouldn't you say so, Sean? Charming girl. Big star someday. Shall we get started? Stella, are you comfortable there? Oh, yes. Quite. Thank you. I'm quite comfortable, too. Now, we must strive to keep the coquettish mincing around the stage to a minimum. It is not really in keeping with the character. Stella, what Mr. Shaw is trying so delicately to say is that you should sit still when another actor is speaking. I was speaking to you. I don't know why. I, 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 I do not mince. There is a distinct swish to your Higgins that is not part of your natural gait. Higgins is a gentleman with the finest breeding and education. He is not a starry-eyed effeminate. Is there a difference? And as for perching on the piano, I do not think that is wise. In fact, I believe we should remove the piano completely. Here I was thinking we might add a love song. Oh, that would be lovely. Pygmalion will not be turned into a romantic operetta. But if we are not switching to the idea that Higgins is teaching Eliza to speak, I mean, if she must speak before the fifth act... If I must Perhaps speak. a scene where Higgins sings to her to illustrate how to form the vowels properly could be charming. I like the idea of a song, but Eliza not speaking. By the light... Of the silvery moon. I want to spoon. Let me be clear. There will never be singing in a George Bernard Shaw play. Let us strive for something fresh and realistic. Let us leave the swooning romance to Gilbert and Sullivan and consider ourselves blessed that neither of you can sing. My good man, I'm just trying to give the people what they want. Yes. But a silent Mrs. Patrick Campbell... There would be gestures and you could grunt. I have agreed to play a street slut and appear in rags for half the evening. Now I am to be without a song and silent? 
There will be no changes to the script, and that is final. I don't know why everyone is so emotional about a simple suggestion. Why not add a limp and a draining goiter? I could make a role such as that, a tour de force that would turn the aisles into rivers of tears. But alas, this is a comedy. Sir Herbert, there is no disputing your genius. London has beaten a path to your door to witness some of the greatest performances since Henry Irving held a skull. But at this point, there can be no structural changes, only cosmetic. One of which must be that you not hoist yourself onto the piano. But if we were to postpone the opening... Then I shall go mad. I must say, you both are awfully prickly this evening. Where is my delightful little Joey? Sir Herbert, please... Banish the serious Mr. Shaw and invite my Joey back and let's all be friends. Why shouldn't your little Joey be prickly? His leading lady disappears for three days and his leading man doesn't know his lines. I know my lines. I stand corrected. Yes, Sir Herbert, you know your lines. The trouble is you don't know mine. They're coming. I just need a good night's sleep. Perhaps we should have Dr. Cavendish prescribe a rescuer for Sir Herbert. What do you think, Stella? I say, are you acquainted with Dr. Cavendish? Shaw, I didn't think you had it in you, you rascal, you. He's the Dr. Charlotte recommended for Stella. He prescribed the months of bed rest that delayed our rehearsals. Oh, I see. What? Shall we proceed? Do you know Dr. Cavendish? I've heard the name. I, I spent weeks making daily visits to Stella's bedside, enduring Charlotte's hot rages and icy silences, so I demand to know, who is he? He's just a woman's doctor. I know that. Well, Joey, there were complications. You said it was exhaustion. How complicated can that be? Dr. Cavendish's clients tend to be women, many of whom are unmarried, who find themselves in a moment of crisis, if you understand me. He is expert in performing delicate procedures that eliminate the crisis. He is quite well known in certain circles. Do you mean... A woman of my age is supposed to be past such things. You know how easily I put on weight. Initially, we thought there was reason to hope, but ultimately we did what had to be done. Are you terribly angry? Should I be angry, or should Cornwallis West? I don't know. What did you say to Mr. Cornwallis West? Wally was prepared to do his duty as far as his wife and the Churchills would allow. Yes. Perhaps the Churchills are better equipped to deal with the results. But since there was nothing to be done... Of course. The fewer who knew the details, the better. Cornwallis West, obviously, and his wife, Lady Churchill. Which means all of court knows, because that little snot Winston is such a jibber-jabber. That must be how Charlotte knew which doctor to recommend. There was clearly no need to mention it to me. I have been so afraid you'd think less of me. You're sure you're not angry? Of course not. Obviously something had to be done. 
seeing the situation through to its natural end wasn't tenable, and my wife would never have sent over that sort of doctor. Clearly nothing to be done. No sense in crying over spilt milk. Now, now see what you've done. You've reduced me to maudlin cliches. Shall we continue? I've spoken to Merivale, and he's agreed to cut the last speech in the first act. So, Stella, you'll want to come right in after Higgins' line, you were born in Lisson Grove. Right. Doesn't cutting that ruin my laugh? Yes. Now, Stella, all of your costumes are perfect, with the exception of the lavender dressing gown in the second act. Higgins would not have such an item in his home, so... We'll go back to the yellow kimono for that scene. But I detest yellow. As it turns out, yellow is Higgins' favorite color. Isn't that right, Sir Habit? Yes, all shades, saffron, daffodil, harvest gold, egg yolk. Now, I believe we've discussed the slippers. Not with Stella. Stella, about the slippers... It must only look realistic when you throw them at Sir Herbert's head. Cupid couldn't launch those orthopedic missiles with better aim. I've told you that it was an accident. Every time, both slippers. No matter how far upstage I move, you always manage to find my skull. Well, if you would look at me when you're speaking, you might see them coming. I'm not sure I like your tone. I came here in good faith to apologize and seek guidance from Mr. Shaw, and my reward has been nothing but shame and a torrent of insults. A silent Mrs. Patrick Campbell, indeed. Why not turn the whole thing into a banana-colored ballet? I don't know what sort of treatment you could expect. I have apologized. Three days before opening night without a word. And when you return, you do nothing but wiggle and scratch during my line. I am sorry, but the sad, embarrassing fact is that the corset pinches. Oh, good God, woman, you're a flower girl from the street who's just been deloused and scrubbed clean. Eliza's corset, if she ever had one, would be sizzling in a stove somewhere. Joey, Eliza may be stripped of her dignity, but Mrs. Patrick Campbell does not appear on stage without her corset. It isn't realistic. Realistic or not, that is. It's best to let her have her head on this one, old man. Trust me. It's never wise to come between an actress and her corset. But you must look at me during my speeches. But I never know where to look. You're never in the same place twice. You would know if you hadn't indulged in an impromptu naughty holiday with your little taffeta and lace boy. Wally is hardly a boy, and I resent your implication. Joey, are you just going to sit there and let him speak to me in this manner? You may trust I'll summon the proper doctor when I see blood. Until then, God bless. Joey, why are you being so heartless? All right. Since Sir Herbert insists on continuously bringing up my absences and those horrid slippers, I wish to renew my objection to Eliza's age. Why must she be ten... Twenty. Thirty-five. ...years younger than I? Why must her age be specified at all? All those speeches about how young and innocent she appears once she's been washed. It's humiliating. Perhaps. Sir Herbert doesn't know them, so we might as well cut those lines too. Thank you. They are an insult to any actress with the experience necessary to playing the role. But those are my lines. You have plenty more. An actress of 22, no matter how dewy or blonde, couldn't possibly hold the stage with that 
orator. I'll have you know that I've trod the boards with many young women. Why, my latest Lady Mac... Uh, Lady M was nineteen and as nubile a nymph as ever graced the stage. Cynthia would make a lovely Eliza. She was a splendid Lady M, coached to perfection by you, I'm sure. Oh, I say, did you see it? No. Now, as I have explained numerous times, Eliza's youth is necessary because a more mature woman is not capable of such fundamental learning and change. Balls. Oh, I know what's afoot here. Charlotte put you up to this. Only another woman would understand the Sisyphean cruelty of forcing me to my makeup mirror night after night to recreate the visage of adolescence. My dear, this is all just a part of the theatre. Not for much longer. Things are changing. The new theatre only requires an actress to call upon her own personal experiences to invoke truth. Hedda Gabler has no age nor weight, and Eliza will not be born of a rouge pot. I demand that she be portrayed more realistically. She must be described as, as nearly 25. Ha! 16. 23. 14. Why do you insist on being so cruel? Madam, I think we've established that I am not the one who is cruel. But Joey... I will discuss only the play. Then why must she be a child? Because it would appear Eliza is to be the only child I shall ever have. <gasps> Joey. I will speak only of the play from this point forward. Is that clear? I say, since we're discussing the characters' ages, there's no mention of Higgins' age. What do you think? Do you think people would believe I'm as old as, uh, 30? I'm speaking as seen from the stage, of course. Oh, yes. Yes, 30. Not a day more. Brilliant! Now, where shall we stick that reference? Please, Sir Herbert, Stella, you must trust that I know what I'm doing. This play is realism, not pink, gauzy romanticism. Now, if we could all just muster a shred of professionalism... Professionalism? Mr. Shaw, I will not be lectured on the theatre by you. I am not merely a professional. I do not toil for wages. I perform for the nourishment of the secret soul of an artist. I am an actress. Your secret is safe with me. I have passions that will not be contained. If all of the theatres in the whole of London should dissolve into the inky night, I would travel from sitting room to sitting room and humbly read from the great works of dramatic literature and gratefully accept as my only compensation a simple cup of tea. Every actor slurs something like that over a beer after rehearsal. But the truth is, we measure our value by the number of lines we have, and the audience judges us by the number of empty seats they count, and believe me, they count. Tell her, Shaw. Bernard need not tell me anything. We are high priest and priestess in this, the sacred chamber of humanity, he and I. You are a merchant. Joey, explain it to him. At this moment, I want nothing more than to retire to my home in the tomb-like silence of my wife. But we must press on as an opening night curtain waits not for man, woman, nor child. I want to address the first sound that the audience hears from Eliza. You are cold, it's raining. You have only a few pennies for the gas meter in your attic room and a sack of rags to sleep on. 
Freddy boulders into you, scattering your basket of flowers into the gutter. Go. <coughs> no! Yes, no, that is wrong. This is not La Boheme. It needs to be more guttural, rather like two alley cats in Mr. Shaw. distress. Thank you. Now, now. Mi voce, Joey, mi voce. <clears throat> now, now, now. Tree moves behind Stella and gooses her. Oh! Yes, that's it. Thank you, Sir Herbert. May we now discuss some quibbles of mine that are not yet resolved? Proceed. I want to be particularly sure of Eliza's attention when I am making that speech in the fifth act where I call her a common idiot. Do you mean when you crossed up center when you should have stayed down left? Sure. Please tell the actress playing Eliza that my audiences pay good money to hear my voice. And from the center of the stage, my voice is at its most mellifluous. With the old blocking, I was able to hear you perfectly. The issue isn't audibility, it's resonance, it's timbre, it's magic. All of my great speeches are delivered from there. Queen Mab, once more into the breach, we few, we happy few, all of the Scottish King's speeches. If I am not there at the end of a speech, how is the audience to know it is time to applaud? But Sir Herbert, this is not Macbeth. <gasps> oh dear! Undo it! Undo it now. I don't subscribe to superstition. It, it is, is not superstition. superstition. You must leave the theatre at once. Tell the stage manager or one of the electricians that they are not to let you in until you've knocked at the stage door. Three strong knocks. But that's five flights of stairs at the back of the theatre. I'm tired. It's two in the morning. She's right. What shall we do? Mrs. Campbell, will you allow me to escort you from the theatre until this sacrilege has been corrected? Thank you, Sir Herbert. We mustn't tarry. You're both being silly. We've got work to do. You shall be banished from this and I dare say every other theatre in London until you go down and undo this curse. Go outside and turn round three times. Don't forget to spit and curse. Oh, I won't forget to curse. And then beg to be allowed back into the theatre. Hurry, before calamity befalls us all. I won't... Oh, dear. Where did I leave my hat? All right. But then enough silliness and we must get down to work. With missionary zeal. Absolutely. Now, Holy Mary and Ophelia's flowers, go. Ah. Do you like this cloak? I've had it made for a production of Antony and Cleopatra I'm contemplating. Oh, I'd love to play Cleopatra. Me too. How long do you think I'll reprieve? He's flying down those stairs at least two at a time. No more than a few minutes, I'm afraid. Enough for a drop of tea? I should think so. Tree produces two teacups and a bottle of whiskey from his desk. One lump or two? Two, please. You know Joey wouldn't approve. Ah, uh, then we shan't mention it. But it is such fun to get him all lathered up, isn't it? Mm. <coughs> Rather strong, I'm afraid. I shall soldier on. Ah. I don't know if I've ever told you just how much I've admired your work over the years. Your Paula Tanqueray is seared into my memory. You're too kind. I saw the closing night of Romeo and Juliet, and I shall never hear another Mercutio and not think of you.
Bless you. Devastating production. Pity about poor Merivale, though. You thought so, too? <laughs> He's under contract, so what could I do? You could have played Romeo yourself. Oh, no, 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 I couldn't. <laughs> I, I really couldn't. Mm. My Romeo days are behind me, I'm afraid. Mm. Long, long behind me. <laughs> to attempt the role at this stage would just be macabre. Macabre. Do you really think I could pull it off? It is your duty to the theatre to play that role. Knees aren't what they used to be, you know. Nonsense! Your Mercutio was quite athletic. Yes, but then I'm dead at the interval and can nap all through the second half. That's where the real meat is for Romeo, you know. Of course, your Juliet was sublime. I was vivisected by a certain critic who has turned to writing plays about unwashed flower girls. Yes, I felt the lash of that same critic. Still, you and Forbes brought that play back to life for me. I tried to make something of the part. I played her as a brunette. Glorious. And it was all my own hair. No. Yes, all mine. Lady Tree said you had never been more beautiful. She's right. She thinks quite highly of you, you know. I'd love to have her for lunch one day soon. That would be very kind. I think Maud would like that very much. She doesn't get out much, you know. Why not? Has been like that for several years now. Well, she's fine inside the house, and somehow she can manage to come to the theatre for my first nights. But any of her other wifely duties seem to be beyond her. She spends her days reading every newspaper she can get her hands on, and her evenings working herself into a frothy panic over Kaiser Wilhelm. I try to keep up, I really do, but... It seems Maud is quite correct when she says, I only have a head for the stage. I'm not a perfect man, I know. Damn fine actor, but not a good husband. A brilliant theatre manager, but a weak man. A magnificent physical specimen, but, well, you get the idea. In this world, my dear, a man selects a woman for only one reason, to make a better man of him. And if she fails in her responsibilities, no matter how great his achievements, the man is lost. Has she no say-so in the accepting of this responsibility? She could choose not to accept. Must it be all or nothing? It's a responsibility that cannot be borne by half measures, I'm afraid. And how does she fulfill such responsibility? By helping him feel less alone in the world, I suppose. And what is her reward? just might be to be immortalized in the pages of a play. This play? Oh, dear because God, Because no. immortalized as a gutter snipe a is a reward. A snipe who has made a princess. I'm not sure it's a fair reward. The only way to know is to forgive a man his failings. But can he forgive hers? I imagine you'd have to read all of his plays to find that out. And I make it a policy never to read a play that wasn't written specifically for me. It does seem to me, though as someone sitting in the cheap seats, that a great man has fallen deeply in love with you. And like it or not, you must accept either the responsibility for that love or the consequence of breaking his heart. Either way, you certainly cannot abandon him. I haven't abandoned Joey. Haven't you? Never. We're dear friends. A man suffers a thousand deaths when he's offered friendship in place of love. But what if that's all there can ever be? I wouldn't know. I, 
never had a friendship with a woman, present company excluded, we always fall a little bit in love. But does that love last? No, of course not. But a man who falls in love with every woman he meets is considered an adorable scamp, while a woman who makes every man she meets fall in love with her runs the risk of being branded a common <coughs> slut. <coughs> Did you perform the ritual as prescribed by the theater gods? Yes. Good. Then perhaps we can get back to work. Not just yet. Sir Herbert tells me that people think I'm a wanton. Is that why you've made Eliza a common street slut? Is this whole place some sort of joke? Tree, did you say that? How dare you, sir? I would never. Sir, this demands an answer. Prepare for utter humiliation. On guard. Have you lost your mind? I'll have you know my sword fighting always receives spontaneous applause. And yet, Mercutio still died. And guard! Oh, oh yeah! Oh, oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! Oh, Ow! That's enough. It is not. He has insulted you. Oh, Joey. You have defended me magnificently. Bravo. As your reward, I shall present you with a piece of Mrs. Wills's chocolate. It was frightfully expensive, and I would have given it earlier, but you were so cross, I didn't think you deserved it. But now I see all is forgiven. So for you, I shall endure Sir Herbert's insult like a lady. Then I shall have to endure yours like a gentleman. What? To suggest that I would devote weeks of toil just to hold you up to ridicule implies I am either a shallow cad or an evil genius on par with Iago. Neither illustration appeals to me, but for the sake of our production, I shall bear your insult and proceed. Oh, Joey, you know I don't think of you as a shallow cad. Then that leaves an evil genius. You are not evil. You're a playwright. That leaves genius. Yes, I guess it does. <laughs> Shall we proceed? Say it. Say what? George Bernard Shaw is a genius. Isn't one massive ego in the room enough? I resent that. It isn't ego if it's true, and in my case it is. Say it. Meaning that in my case it is not? Sir Herbert, I've spent the better part of a month massaging your ego. Allow me this, please? Can't we leave it simply that I hold your work in high regard? Joey is a genius. Mr. Shaw. Please. Joey, you know your plays are quite good. Genius. And your writing is most intelligent. Intelligent? There are snippets that I believe will live for generations. Snippets? You beget your characters like a god. Thank you. And then fail to provide them with guts. There are no hearts, no souls, just brains and bones. Yeah, but... Not up. Don't get upset. They are magnificent brains and bones. They strut on the stage, spouting the most delightful ideas. But there is no passion. There is no love. Love? Your characters are cold. Although, oh. to be fair, there are passages in the text that could be goosed in the love direction. Don't you think, Stella? Absolutely. The ending, for instance. That's what I was thinking. Exactly. It could be played in such a way that the audience concludes there is a wedding on the horizon for Henry and Eliza. Do we need new lines? D 
Dear Thespis, no, no more lines. After your exit, I can pick a bouquet of flowers and wander dreamily to the balcony. I watch the street, and then I catch sight of you turning back to look up at my window. I blow you a kiss and then toss the bouquet after you as the curtain falls to rapturous applause. Yes, that's it. And there are certainly lines in that scene that I can deliver as if I loved you. Congratulations, Joey. You've written a completely modern romance. Don't be repulsive. Pygmalion is a meeting of two emotional and intellectual equals who find a way of building a new kind of intersex relationship. Romance and certainly conjugal events are never a part of it. It's the hint of conjugal events that sells tickets. There's something to be said for conjugal events. But it's just an idea. A shockingly bad one. Hmm. What do you say, Mrs. Pat? Shall we begin rehearsals for Antony and Cleopatra on Monday? You can play the Egyptian if you insist. Oh, I think I can get two weeks out of this one, Shaw, so that it's not a complete loss for you. Maybe we can make a success of the next one. What if Pygmalion is a hit? <laughs> it's possible. Not bloody likely. It is. Mr. Shaw, Sir Herbert and I have not the luxury of wealthy relations to help us over the dry spells. We need a hit. Pygmalion is a fine little play, but any fool can see that as it is, it's not going to run. It's not your fault. You simply know nothing of passion or what moves a lady to it. So what? So what? Passion frightens you. Frightens? Yes. Terrifies, I'd say. At the risk of being unchivalrous, Miss Pat, you know firsthand my prowess for passion. Hmm. Have you forgotten that evening after a particular opening night? Mr. Shaw, please. Not in front of the T-R-E-E. -E. I can spell my own name. And would a man terrified of passion have followed you to the seaside? Abandoning his wife for seven days? Oh, Joey, you've done remarkably well not bringing up that dreary misunderstanding. Why not leave it be? Because you have accused me of being afraid of passion. I offer that holiday as proof you are wrong. The first day, we did nothing but walk through the grass and talk about Harley Granville Barker. You call that chivalry, Shaw? I needed a rest holiday at the sea, not a lecture on the merits of Henrik Ibsen and the new theatre. What else were you to talk about? My eyes, my voice. If you could have catalogued my charms, as many have done before you, we could have both spent a pleasant afternoon. I had seven whole days planned out. Day one was just the prelude. We didn't even get to Strindberg. Strindberg is many things, but a prelude to passion he is not. I beg to differ. Joey. I adore you, but a lady has expectations, and you simply are not capable of meeting them. It's all right. You have other charms. What are your expectations? A lady likes to have a gentleman gaze longingly into her eyes. Longing for what? Oh, dear Lord. I know for what. What I don't understand is why. I know what your eyes look like. Why must I look into them? Now you're getting peevish. Joey... We can't all be good at everything. 
human contact is just not something at which you excel. I can certainly look into your eyes if that's what you want. I say you can't. This sounds like a magnificent opportunity for a wager. Don't be ridiculous. I wager that you are incapable of looking into the beautiful midnight eyes of Mrs. Patrick Campbell for the length of time it takes me to visit the water closet. I most certainly can. The water closet at the back of the orchestra pit. But that's miles away. It doesn't matter. You couldn't do it if it was the next room. Balderdash! Shaw pulls out a bench and straddles one end. He pats the other end for Stella, who also straddles and sits. Excellent. The time will begin when I give the word. You shall each be required to maintain eye contact for the duration of my absence. If Shaw breaks concentration, we shall open the play in the romantic manner I suggest, and that interpretation shall be etched in stone for all of time. If Mrs. Patrick Campbell should break the bond, then... then what? I shall relinquish the role of Liza and never ask Mr. Shaw for another play. I presume my understudy is ready. She's had three extra days of rehearsal. Right. Shaw, do you agree? I lose either way. Not. If Stella breaks, we'll also play the script your way. For at least a month. At least a month. Regardless of receipts. Done. All right, then. Would you like some tea before we proceed? No, thank you. All right. The instant I give the go, you are to begin. Ready? Yes. Absolutely. Magnificent. And begin. Now, where did I leave my copy of Macbeth? Oh, dash. This may take longer than I thought. Good luck. What are you thinking? 200,278, 200,279, 200,280. Have you been counting this whole time? Yes. Blink? If you like. One, two, three, blink. One, two, three, open. This is intolerable. Shall we declare this exercise a draw? If you like. Then shall we look away together? Not a chance. Then blink? Certainly. One, two, three, blink. One, two, three, open. I think you're counting more quickly than you were. It's a blink, not a nap. Oh, a nap sounds divine. Are you conceding? Conceding what? I've been looking into your eyes for the better part of an hour. So what? You've hardly been playing there. Silently counting inoculates you against any charms my eyes may hold for you. Well, if you believe that, why are we doing this? I didn't realize you were counting. 200,296. You are a beast. Yet you can sit there and look into my eyes, eyes that have enchanted royalty, and think of nothing but numbers. I could recite Romeo and Juliet. If you like, it would still prove nothing. Well, it would at least make this entertaining for me. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. Do you know the entire play? I do. I don't believe it. I could recite the entire Shakespearean canon. 
You shall have to prove that to me one day. All right. It may take a bit of time, but I think I can manage. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. Not now. You're supposed to be looking into my eyes and seeing eternity. Is that what Cornwallis West sees? You never mind about Wally. Right. Blink? No. Blink? No. I've agreed to every request you've made. Well, I'm not in the giving vein. But... I'm not in the vein. Blast! Curse all you like. I intend to see this through to the end. Fine. Let's look away together. Not a chance. My eyes are beginning to burn. Do you honestly feel nothing for me? I will only have this conversation if you release me from this ocular death grip. Fine. I agree to look away if you do. One, two, three. <sighs> you know... If you'd been any sort of gentleman, this ordeal could have ended ages ago with a simple kiss. That's the usual response men have to gazing into my eyes. That may be how boys like Wally respond, but men like George Bernard Shaw have a way with women that's a bit more modern. Modern, did you say? Do tell. There has been more than one lady who has taken a more than passionate interest in George Bernard Shaw over the years, and not just his mind. I am a modern man. Ooh, la. It would be ungentlemanly to name names, don't you know, but I'd say it's a fair statement that the ladies of London sit up and take notice when an Irishman enters the room. Do they now? Tis true. I can't decide if it's got something to do with the compulsion to civilize us, turn us into proper gentlemen, or if they simply have an unthinking need for the unconventional. My secret, of course, is that while they recognize a lady isn't always what she appears to be, those same ladies almost always assume that there is nothing more to a man than what meets her eye. There so rarely is. A London lady could, of course, settle for a domesticated cat of an Englishman, but that's so conventional. So middle class. You English ladies think you want a nice quiet home with an English house cat purring by the fire when what you really want, what you deserve, is to run with a fine Irish setter. Haven't you heard? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Who's had better luck with a cat? A cat strays. All it takes is a saucer of cream. Eventually the cream goes sour and the cat wants some herring. Things are changing, my friend. Soon you women will have the vote, and then you won't need a man for anything more than making children. A modern woman will be free, Stella, and you won't have to make do with any more taffeta and lace boys. You can live your life not just with a man, but an equal. Are you a modern woman, Stella? Shaw leans in to kiss Stella, but... I say, sorry to interrupt, but do we have a winner? A draw, I'm afraid. Hmm. Have you broken the curse? Of course. Then there is to be no more mention of the Scottish play. Mr. Shaw, have you any more notes for we two poor actors, or are we free to seek shelter and rest before our debut? Are you a modern woman? Is your wife... Why do I feel like I've just walked in on a couple of schoolboys in a linen closet? Oh, 
Joey is just exercising his lungs. Do you know how he survived the ordeal of looking into my eyes? By counting. He says he could have just as easily recited the entire text of Romeo and Juliet and not felt the slightest twinge of love. Your problem is that you confuse love, passion, and romance. Love is nothing more than the tool the female uses in response to the call of the life force. It has been necessary in the past for the propagation of the species, but is an antiquated idea at best. And passion is just the manic state of love, probably the result of the eating of meat. But, Joey, what's wrong with a little romance? Nothing, except that it's a waste of time. Nothing more than a fiction manufactured by one sex to control the other. It justifies the tortures of courtship leading up to the simple financial contract of marriage. It also is an economic aid, encouraging the sale of useless things, such as novels and perfume. But it's fun! That's the trouble with the both of you. You fail to realize the value of work. And certainly of this work in particular. That you would think this is a silly little romance is absurd. Pygmalion, whether you want to see it or not, is a roadmap for a new social congress between the sexes. In the end, that's what we new playwrights are doing. I have committed my work, nay, my existence, to smashing romance and creating a world where men and women are equals. Ibsen, Chekhov, and Shaw. We shall wake all of you from your carnivorous romantic stupor so that we can get on with the, the business of not only populating the world, but... Yes, 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 better world, modern woman, man, all that blather. You know the whole text of Romeo, you say? He claims to know the entire canon, from King John to King Lear. I have studied Shakespeare relentlessly. He is a fraud. Piffle. As an Irishman, you're incapable of grasping the subtleties of Shakespeare's English mind. Romeo and Juliet is the greatest play ever written, and Romeo is the most complex, terrifying of characters in all of literature. Far more interesting than anything you've ever written, Shaw. That is why I've decided that when we close your play, I'm reopening Romeo and finally tackling the role myself. Bravo! Oh, Sir Herbert! I'm petrified! You'll be magnificent! Stella, will you be my Juliet? What? Oh. <laughs> what about the ages? You made such a fuss at playing my 16-year-old Eliza. How will you manage his 14-year-old Juliet? This is Shakespeare. Yes, Sir Herbert. I would be honoured to be your Juliet. And you, Tree, still a boy of 16? Sir Herbert Beerbohm Tree is ageless. It is my skill as a tragedian that will move the audiences, not the glow of youth. Playing tragedy is nothing compared to what it takes to create a comedy. Care to make a wager? What are the terms? Same as before. Your challenge? We shall see who is able to move Mrs. Patrick Campbell to tears first with any scene from Romeo and Juliet you choose. You say you know the text? I do. Stella, will you be judge? Delighted. Sure. I'll even give you the advantage and allow you to play Juliet. It should be ever so much easier for you to act as if you were desperately in love with me than it would be for me to reciprocate. But I shall triumph. I am tree. Are you prepared? 
Prepared for what? Utter humiliation. Will thou be gone? It is not yet near day. It was the nightingale and not the lark that pierced the fearful hollow of thine ear. Oh, bravo. Silence. It was the lark, the herald of the morn, no nightingale. Look, love, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. I must be gone and live, or stay and die. Yon light is not daylight, I know it, I. It is some meteor that the sun exhales to be to thee this night a torch-bearer, and light thee on thy way to Mantua. Therefore, stay yet. Thou needst not to be gone. Let me be taken, let me be put to death. I have more care to stay than will to go. Come, death and welcome. Juliet wills it so. How is my soul? Let's talk, it is not day. It is. It is, high hence, be gone away. It is the lark that sings so out of tune, straining harsh discords and unpleasing sharps. Some say the lark makes sweet division. This doth not so, for she divideth us. Some say the lark and loathed toad changed eyes. Oh, now I would they had changed voices too, since arm from arm that voice doth us afraid, hunting thee hence with hunts up to the day. Oh, now be gone. More light and light it grows. Mm -hmm. What did you think, Stella? You were brilliant, as expected, Sir Herbert. But you, awful. You may have gotten all of the words correct, but you, Mr. Shaw, utterly failed to bring forth Juliet's soul. Mm. I was every bit the tragic, romantic heroine. But did you really think I was good? Yes. Joey... You miss the point entirely. The two of them know full well that they are to be parted forever. Oh, it's useless to explain it to you. You can know nothing of a young woman's heart. Is that so? Art thou gone so, my lord, my love, my friend? I must hear from thee every day in the hour, for in a minute there are many days. Oh, by this count I shall be much in years, ere I again behold my Romeo. He kisses Stella. Oh, I say, Shaw, that's hardly sporting. Oh, thinks thou we shall ever meet again? I doubt it not. Stella kisses Shaw. Now, I really must protest. Oh, God, I have an ill-divining soul. Methinks I see thee, now thou art below, as one dead in the bottom of a tomb. Either my eyesight fails, or thou look'st pale. And trust me, love, in my eyes so do you. Dry sorrow drinks our blood. Adieu. Adieu. I say, Shaw, not bad. Not bad at all, in spite of that bit of foul play there at the end. Stella, the winner. Oh, Joey. Thank you. I should have stipulated that there is to be no audience participation. That, of course, changes everything. But no matter, I am a gracious loser. Oh, Sir Herbert, I can say with great authority that Forbes himself never did as well. Joey, 
You could have a brilliant career on the stage, not just the page. I don't believe you could have done that if you were truly an anti-romantic. Breath control and diction. That's all romance is. I know better. My dear Mrs. Campbell, that is what is known in the theatre as technique, based on hard work and sacrifice. True art relies on hard work, not inspiration, as you and Sir Herbert seem to believe. Inspiration visits so rarely that a real artist knows hard work is all that really sustains us. Now, I've indulged this nonsense for far too long. We have work to do. You can't fool me. Your inspiration is romance, George Bernard Shaw. Your kiss betrayed everything. Such inspiration visits me often. Yes, every time there is a prince or an earl in one of the boxes. That is cruel, Joey. It is true. A wise manager would seat King Edward himself in the first row of every one of your first nights to ensure a success. I am an actress who strives to please her audience. So what? You could be so much more if only you could commit to a higher ideal. Certainly something higher than romance. At the very least, you could be committed to the aims of your playwright. Why, the idea? Stella, you are not without talent, but you lack focus. We are here to work, are we not? And there has been nothing but hours of delay for every five minutes of work, and now my reward for being so permissive is to be branded of romantic. Intolerable. Then write me a simple drawing room drama where I can wear a plain black dress and watch some other actress sweat blood while I stand at the back of the stage with a silver tray. Bearing the head of John the Baptist. <laughs> I do miss Oscar. That was a man who could write playable parts. You know, he wrote Salome for me. I had no idea. Did you know that Ernest was to have been mine? You don't say. It's true. I stupidly dismissed it as a little ruffle at the time because I just had my first success as Hamlet. And you may find this hard to believe, but in my younger days, I was a trifle full of myself. No. No, oh, it's true. How was I to follow up a Shakespearean triumph with a little comedy by Oscar Wilde? Such a shame. I reached out to him in the end, but he was so glum. Living in a squalid little hotel in Paris, even Bernhardt couldn't revive him. Told her that his genius wasn't appreciated. Yes. Genius could be standing right in the room with you and go completely ignored. There aren't really any English playwrights of that caliber anymore. Wilde was Irish. One must reach back 300 years to find Oscar's equal. Well, of course there's Pinero. Well, not a bit. Ibsen? Not English, of course. I found Hedda playable, but I suspect Archer has translated the life out of most of Ibsen. Yes, but there are a few men characters with some guts to them. Yes, guts that can be brought to life. I'm weary of these yammer-jammer plays where all people do is talk about ideas. Audiences want to be thrilled. They want to fall in love. Tosh! Audiences come to the theatre to feed their minds. The audience comes to the theatre 
to find out what everyone else thinks of the play so they'll have an opinion to state at their next dinner and to gossip during intermission. You can throw your grand ideas on the stage if you like, but gossip is the only way to secure a hit, Shaw. And the only things that ensure gossip are sexual magnetism, which I obviously provide, and a leading lady in a fashionable hat. So true. That's the real theatre, not your sermonizing and socialistic twaddle. The lifeblood of real theatre is gossip and innuendo, and we actors thrive on it. Playwrights, too, if they're not too hypocritical to admit it. I am not a hypocrite. Oh, of course not you. You're a man of important ideas. But Stella and I are just poor players without a thought between us that some playwright hasn't put into our pretty little heads. Don't be snotty, Herbert. I'm not, am I, Bernard? You have superior intellect and morals, don't you? Never an impure thought or deed. Convents are full of novices who hold their virtues in less regard than your Joey holds his. Herbert! Believe it or not, I've read your worshipful letters to Ellen Terry. You're quite the Casanova, as long as you don't have to actually touch a real, live woman. Herbert, please. Stage kiss is one thing, but all of London knows your wife treats you like a little china doll she keeps in a hutch and looks at from time to time, but never fully enjoys. I respect my wife. As I mine. In spite of your army of mistresses? Ah, there we have it. For all your talk, your morals are as conventional as your tie. I don't believe you're a man, Shaw. I require proof, because I have seen no evidence of it in your work. Hide behind your pen because you, you don't know your way around a woman's skirt. Oh, you may know how to lift one, but the tiny little fastener is a definite mystery. Nonsense. I'm not saying you swing the wild way. I've got no sense from the Nancy boys you have the courage to swim even in those waters. But I understand your work better than you do. Much better, in fact. I shall explain it to you over tea sometime. The day you can explain my work to me is the day an army of leprechauns comes jigging through that door. Care to make it interesting? What are your terms? If I can prove I know your play better than you do, you will give me all of Pickering's laugh lines. And if not? Pickering shall have all of mine. Agreed. Well, strap on your dancing shoes, laddie, and grab your shillelagh. To wit, you positively ache for romance. You can't be serious. Anyone who has ever heard or read a single word of mine knows that I believe we are all above such twaddle, even you, if only you would apply yourselves to higher things. Such as? Such as the improvement of, of everything. There's so much that could be done from your stage, but all you offer are romantic fantasies and expensive tableau. It's... You, center stage, begging for adulation. <laughs> don't pretend you don't crave the same thing. In fact, I'd say you're far greedier. You don't write plays for audiences, you write for posterity. I write the plays no one else will. That should tell you something, don't you think? 
Both of you have hounded me for a script for years, and now that I've produced it, you not only mock me for it, you absolutely refuse to put in the work necessary to make it a success. It wouldn't hurt you to acknowledge that Stella and I have put on a successful play or two in our day. Not one of my plays. Your plays are no different than anyone else's. I challenge my audiences to be better people. Oh, well, what playwright has ever tried to do that? Snot! Since your work is so advanced, I wonder if you would be so good as to tell us what this one is really about. It's about the struggle of a young woman who develops the outer trappings of the middle class only to realize that the middle classes are hollow. I see. And the title of this masterpiece? You know very well the title. Right. And what is the myth of Pygmalion exactly? Pygmalion was a sculptor who slaved away at a block of marble creating the perfect representation of a woman he called Galatea. Galatea came to life when Pygmalion saw how beautiful she was and fell in love. In... Yes? He was, well, he, he realized he, he... Precisely. Well, mine is not a strict documentation of the fable. If you say so. You are purposely misinterpreting my play. It was the sculptor's hard work and sacrifice that brought the statue to life. Nothing else. Of course. I shall write an epilogue, so there can be no doubt of my meaning. Oh, yes, you must get to work on that right away. Everyone in London knows that is not a romantic bone in my body. Stella, in your experience, is it the hard work and sacrifice of a good man that brings a woman to life? I rest my case. Mr. Shaw, I will now be retiring for the night. Ordinarily, I sleep up there when I'm working, but I shall go home and give Maud a treat. Please summarize your final direction in a letter, and when it arrives in the morning, I promise I shall promptly burn it. Fear not. I also promise I shall work, work, work to learn all my new laugh lines as well as perfect the lumbering gait you think Professor Higgins requires. But make no mistake, you have written a romance, Mr. George Bernard Shaw, one that exposes you mercilessly. Ironically, it could catapult your name through the ages as you so desperately desire, if only you had the courage to let it. Good night. Oh, one more thing. The staff will come in here promptly at ten to clean up. I mention it only to prevent them from interrupting any important work the two of you may be doing at that hour. Adieu, adieu, adieu. Remember me. Perhaps you and Charlotte could come to lunch tomorrow and we could discuss your notes and a few other things before the performance. My wife has gone abroad with her sister. Really? When did she leave? Yesterday. Charlotte wishes to be thinner, her sister wishes to be plumper, so they've gone to Sweden to be treated for asthma. <laughs> <sighs> oh, Joey, I'm so sorry. Why must a woman be everything to a man? Because men demand everything a woman has to give. Is that true of me? You, more than any other man I've ever known. 
You expect nothing more than neon zealotry. Your wife must think she needs to be at the pinnacle of her powers to be around you. I'll wager she thinks she is a disappointment if she is not. She must be exhausted. There will be no more wagers. She doesn't understand. And why should she? Is it fair to demand such singular devotion from her, but for you to pick and choose when and how much devotion to return? Everything has been for her. You only think that's true. It is. Have you written a play for her? Charlotte appears in one form or another in several. But always as the butt of the joke. No woman wants to be a punchline, Joey. I write comedies. You're all punchlines. I can't write everything for her. Can I not have something for myself? I choose to keep my marriage private. I write parts for my friends. Is a man not allowed to have friends? Yes, but they're supposed to look like hairy tugboats. Ah. Your friends tend to be the most beautiful women in London. Janet A. Church and Ellen Terry are formidable beauties, you must admit. I suppose that's true enough. And then there's me. You're all right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> are we still friends? Of course we are. We must be. You wrote this script for me. I wrote this script because of you. You pursued me like a yapping lapdog after a rabbit. And you allowed me to catch you. I must confess that there have been times, one in particular, when I feared for our friendship. At the seaside? Why should that jeopardize our friendship? We, we were to spend a week together trying to make sense of J.M. Barry. Yes, you promised to help me with his script. And that promise meant something to me. And to me. And after the weeks I'd secretly spent at your bedside, you knew Charlotte was nearly insane with anger at the mention of your name. What you were proposing was far worse. I don't see how. I wasn't unfaithful to my wife. We were simply working. Exactly. And haven't you just finished preaching that there is nothing more important in life than work? Well, what does that matter now? You smashed everything up most cruelly. That wasn't my intention. All I wanted was to go swimming at 7.45. I had intended to keep our appointment. Then why did you not? Was I mistaken? No. You insisted, insisted on eight o'clock. So precisely at eight, I arrived at your room only to be told by the hotel maid that you had checked out a half an hour earlier, leaving no forwarding address. I was humiliated. The rest of the day, I had to endure the hotel staff whispering and snickering. Please, tell me there was an error on my part that I did not understand our agreement. There was no misunderstanding. Why? All your talk. Talk, 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 talk. Joey, you strive for perfection, and I just wanted a few moments of peace to learn my lines. I just needed silence. What good is silence? There is never enough of it. You know, actors are promised just how sweet applause is. And it is intoxicating. But if you wait for it, after the curtain has come down, there is a cool silence that envelops you like no other. 
Once the curtain comes down, the ghosts of all characters who have lived on that stage before come back to welcome your performance to their ranks. It's home. But when an audience has come to see a star, she must race to her dressing room to receive this earl or that duke. A star can make many demands, but if she wishes to pay her bills... She must not disappoint those who come to visit her after a performance. I have made many sacrifices, Joey. Not for art, but for the commerce of art. I don't want to make any more sacrifices. Charlotte said to me on our wedding day that the best decisions in life often feel like sacrifices. She couldn't have said that if the two of you had married for love. No. It's not an indictment, Joey. I know you care for Charlotte. I even think you love her more than you know. But you have to admit that neither of you has exactly lived a life of sacrifice since you married. At least be man enough to admit that. I take great offense at that comment. My wife has never supported me. And you have never supported her. I couldn't be more supportive. In fact, we share many interests. The women's vote, the Fabians, those... Blasted seances. The list is endless in my support of her. Joey, I bring up a bread and butter topic and you turn it into a social manifesto. You know I meant you have never provided for her. There's been no need. So she has money. That doesn't mean she doesn't want you to support her. She's a woman. No matter what her personal means, all women want their men to provide for them. That's the old way of thinking. Charlotte is a modern woman. Soon you'll all have the vote and everything will change. It takes more than a vote to change a woman's heart, Joey. Well, it also probably requires a change of diet as well. Did you know, recently they have discovered a chemical in the human body that may be the basis for the sex drive? They haven't pinpointed the origin, but I suspect it's meat. If we can eliminate that, I'm sure men and women can cure themselves of the craving of the sex euphoria. Well, you eat nothing but chocolate and vegetables. Would you say that you have been cured of sex craving? How would I know? I'm 56 years old. Well, you did follow me to the seaside. I am not the one in need of a sex cure. I jeopardize my marriage for your work. That is all. And when you couldn't even put a pause on your adolescent dalliance with your Wally, I never raised a complaint. Ha! Huh. <laughs> Why should I complain? He's a harmless sort. You like Wally? As much as you like Charlotte. I adore your wife. And I swoon at your every mention of Wally's name. Fine. Tell me one thing about Wally that you admire. Just one. Well... I must say, I find it a marvel how he manages to get that forelock to curl so perfectly on his forehead. Joey. I'm serious. It's perfect. Every single time. And? You ask for one. But, but just to show I'm a good sport and completely devoted to Wally, I can also commend his wonderfully round arms. Yes. There are those. Are forelocks and round arms the things that make you feel like a woman? Maybe. But he's interested in my womanly worries. 
about the disagreement I've had with the dressmaker and whether there is too much salt in the stew. He doesn't care about the latest gossip about Sir Herbert and his poor suffering Maud. He reads the newspaper and forgets it the way a proper gentleman should. There's nothing he can do about any of it, so he settles in at night and spends hours building the most ghastly model ships, disasters that clearly would plummet straight to the bottom of the shallowest tub. But he's proud of them and displays them for my approval with such pride. The world may damn him because of me, but I am where he finds his salvation. Salvation is overrated. You are wrong. I am not a stage door Wally wooing you with a box of chocolates. Oh, chocolates. Are you hungry? Always. I forgot I had these. I came to rehearsal straight from the station. I haven't been home. Oh, Mrs. Wills's for me? No, Joey. You eat too many sweets. And Lord knows I shouldn't have any. I brought them for Pinky Panky Poo, but Wally says a Pekingese shouldn't eat candy, so would you like one? Just one? Just one. Well, he's a beast if he's rationing Pinky's chocolates. It's barbaric. He's brilliant with Pinky, and Pinky adores Wally. Yes, yes, they're both adorable. Where's my chocolate? You have to be patient. I'm looking. And by the way, yes, they are both adorable. If you overlook the adultery. You cad! Pinky would never be unfaithful to me. You know. Oh, for heaven's sake. As one of the most celebrated humorists in England, you should learn to recognize when someone else is making a joke. Adultery is no joking matter. In light of recent revelations, you of all people should realize that. I'm sorry. That was cruel. Of course you're right. Adultery is no joking matter. I wonder... How does your Wally feel about it? My single experience was unplanned, yet he seems to be able to make a sustained effort. Oh, Joey, don't be ugly. Please. Oh, look what I found. Stella produces a small bunch of silk violets. Do you know where I got these? Do you remember that street clown? It was the first night you came backstage after my first revival of Mrs. Tanqueray. It had been raining, and I think you'd sent your wife home in a cab. You had charmed the entire company and kept me in my dressing room long after the theater had closed down. I hadn't quite forgiven you for all of those nasty reviews you'd given me over the years. But I couldn't get you to shut up. Well, your acting has improved. <laughs> Thank you. But when I was finally able to get you to leave, it was so late. I had missed the opening night party, and there were no cabs to be found. Being the gentleman that you are, you offered to walk me home. Do you remember that oriental pub? The gilded kimono. Yes. It was just closing, and there was, <laughs> of all things, a clown outside doing tricks for spare change. Yes. <laughs> he kept pulling bunches of those violets out of his pockets. So many pockets. 
He produced them from everywhere. He filled an entire basket with silk violets. And then he found the last bunch from behind your ear, and he presented it to me. And when he finally spoke, we realized he was a mime because he only spoke French. (laughs) (laughs) And his finale, he did that marvelous backflip, ending up on one knee before you with his head bowed and hand raised to accept his gratuity. That really was quite amazing. (laughs) You laughed like a boy at Christmas. And that laugh echoed up and down Charing Cross, sounding like an audience of angels. I remember thinking that was what heaven would sound like if I ever get there. You know, I fell in love with you a little in that moment. I regret nothing from that evening. Nor do I. Joey, do you remember (laughs) at the Savoy? You insisted in giving your name as Joseph Stolen. Always discretion. They knew us both instantly, of course. He didn't recognize your false name. How how on earth does a bell captain know who Joseph Stalin is, but not Marie Antoinette? And then you gave him a five-pound note. He was an extraordinarily good-natured chap. The extraordinaries must always be acknowledged. Sometimes the ordinary is enough. Why? Because I've lived Hedda Gabler's life and I've been the Scottish queen. I've made my way in a man's world and now I want to make my way in a woman's. I'm too old to spend my evenings slathered in paint, swanning before the footlights in rented gowns. I want to know what it is to have supper on the table and sit by a fire donning socks while my husband reads stories in the newspaper that he'll forget by morning. You're just tired. We won't do any more tonight. I'll go home and write all of my instructions in a letter, and it shall be waiting for you when you wake. And... If you follow them to the letter, I promise that tomorrow night, when the curtain rings down and the audience is mad with adoration for you again, you'll feel much better. I'll stand guard and order Tree to clear the stage for you so you can have your moment of silence. You have earned it, my dear. All day and all night, You've not asked me where I've been these last three days. There's been no need. You quite sensibly took a rest. Although you should have arranged it with three, if not with me. Still, I can't quite remain angry with you because three was deliciously apoplectic. (laughs) But now that I know you slipped off to the seaside and Mrs. Wills's hotel and her chocolates, all is nearly forgiven. What do you say that once we get this beast on the boards properly, you and I dash away there again for a day? Just a day. We can bring Charlotte along so that everything is proper and above board. I think we can forge a new type of friendship, you and I. We'll be models for the world. Once she understands fully, Charlotte will approve. Stella kisses him. Joey, on Tuesday last... I became the second Mrs. Cornwallis West. 
Wally's divorce was made final in the morning, and we were married in the afternoon. I took him to Mrs. Wills's for our honeymoon. He was as enchanted by her as we have been. I see. We thought it best to get it all out of the way. And I was not invited. Would you have come? Well, I'm so busy with the play, you know. Yes. But I must say, Mrs. Whatever you're going to call yourself, deserting the company for that reason was particularly salty. Highly unprofessional. Unprofessional? Is that all you have to say? Unprofessional? Of course we could expect no more from Wally. What does he know of responsibility? A good deal, I should think. Wally insisted that I return and honour my obligation to you. Ah, oh, thinking of me, is he? Are you mad? Excuse me? Was this wedding the act of a responsible adult? Yes. It was the least responsible thing you could do. We did it for Lady Churchill as much as for us. And has she thanked you? Has she rewarded the lovebirds with a pension that will allow you to retire blissfully to the country? If I know the Churchills, they didn't provide Wally with enough to retire to the smoking room, let alone the country. My dear, you thought Bernhardt was a marvel performing with one leg? Imagine playing Lady Macbeth. Yes, I said it, Lady Macbeth. Imagine playing her from your wheelchair, because that's what Wally has in store for you. You thought Wilde's penury unimaginable? He blazed a trail for you. That's not true. Wally will be on his feet in no time, with his own position, independent of Lady Churchill and that entire lot. His only position will be as Mr. Mrs. Patrick Campbell, mark my words. Well, what of that? It's a far cry from Mr. Lady Churchill, that's what. Wally loves me. He loves your notoriety. Don't you dare judge us. I married someone who doesn't drive me mad with philosophical questions or require I learn a new alphabet so that I can read his love letters. He doesn't insist that I rise before dawn to plunge into the Atlantic and bob with the icebergs. I don't have to worry that every word out of my mouth isn't clever enough for him. I should think not. He left his wife for me. He's broken his vows. And that's who you've made an eternal commitment to? That's who you've chosen? A liar and an adulterer? At least I only fit one of those descriptions. He's not half the gentleman you pretend he is. He's gentleman enough for me. Eliza, is this enough for you? Cleopatra? Major Barbara? They could all have been yours. And I will write more. I'll write Joan of Arc, and you shall never play her. I have half a mind to pull Eliza away from you right now and see where you and Wally end up. We could have filled hundreds of theatres with millions of laughing angels. It would have been perfection. That's the trouble. You believe in perfection. I believe in striving for it. There is more to life than striving for perfection. There is nothing else. Bernard, I am not Eliza. I'm not Barbara or Cleopatra or Candida or St. Joan. I am not perfect. And I have no wish to be. Do you understand? Those are not women. They are figments of women played on a stage. Nothing more. There will be other actresses for Cleopatra and St. Joan, but I shall be the last Mrs. Cornwallis West. 
I want no other rule. You can plunge me and Wally into penury. I shall. I'll burn the script on Charing Cross at midnight. It will never see the footlights. Shaw tries to pull open the wall. I will, it will cost me a fortune, but it, it, it will be worth every penny to be free of you. I have never... I, I say, how does this open? I have no idea. There must be a latch. Shaw tries to remove a book from the shelf, but finds that all of the books are merely set pieces. A whole connected row of hollow books comes free from the shelf. Indeed, this is monstrous. He can't have locked us in here. How does he expect us to survive the night? Hmm. It, there doesn't seem to be a, any sort of latch. Yet it must open from the inside somehow. Oh, Joey, sit down. Someone will come with fresh linens in a few hours. See here, I found Mrs. Wills's chocolate. Oh, dear. There is just one left. How did that happen? Where? Do you have your pocket knife? It would take me a century to carve our way out. No, silly. Let's split this chocolate. You'll be doing me one last immense favor, and then you can go back to hating me. I really shouldn't have any, you know. After this one, I'm swearing off them forever. Oh, Joey, that corset is a beast. And I don't know how I'm going to get through a performance in it. Well, come on. Save me from the second half of this chocolate, if nothing else. We may not yet be modern men and women, but I can be a conventional friend if you'll have me. Please, Joey. Shaw reluctantly sits at the bench and carefully measures the chocolate in two equal pieces. Wally's a better man than you give him credit for. It would be impossible for him not to be. I know you're cross now, but in time perhaps the four of us all can be great friends and Charlotte will have to invite us for lunch. If she does, you'll want to wear a different blouse. But I love this blouse. You bought it for me when I was so ill. I have done you the favor of splitting this chocolate. If we are to remain friends, you must do me the favor of never letting Charlotte see you wearing that blouse. Before I could give it to you, she found it in my library and assumed it was an anniversary gift for her. Why I would give her a blouse, I'll never know. She has thousands of them. Before she could wear it, I purloined it back from her closet, thinking she'd never notice. Unfortunately, while I was away, Charlotte discovered the theft and rather dramatically claimed her guides and guardian angels had seen a maid steal it. <laughs> the maid was fired on the spot. Charlotte must never see you wearing that blouse. Promise me. <laughs> oh, the poor maid. Not at all. With the hush money I've given her, she's opened a seaside hotel and sells chocolates to wicked actresses and their harems. Shaw grandly presents Stella with her half of the chocolate with the blade of his knife. Pour vous, madame. <laughs> oh, you will always be my joy. And you shall always be Mrs. Patrick. Campbell. 
Thanks for listening to And Then Galatea Laughed. But there is only one episode left of the season. So if you haven't yet shared Premiere the Play with anyone, now is the time. Please help us reach our goal of 2,000 listens so that we can continue bringing you these incredible plays. And don't forget to find Premiere the Play on Instagram and Facebook to keep up with the latest. And Then Galatea Laughed was written by Scott Carter Cooper and directed by Rebecca Lynn with sound design by Masaki Oraya. George Bernard Shaw was played by Carl Weintraub, Sir Herbert Beerbaum Tree by Skip Pipo, and Mrs. Patrick Campbell by Laurie O'Brien. It was narrated by the ever-talented Sarah Schulte. Check out our digital programs to learn more about the cast and crew at deanproductionstheater.com forward slash premiere hyphen the hyphen play. Don't forget, that's theater with an R-E at the end. Next week is our final episode of season two, so don't miss the powerful story of a death row inmate and a professor trying to discover themselves in The Captives. You've been listening to Premiere the Play, featuring new plays from around the world. Produced by Dean Productions, a 501c3 nonprofit. Like what you hear? Visit our website for past episodes and to make a tax-deductible donation.